Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our own solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Andrew Rushby. And, you know, we've had a little extended winter break here in the Exocast studio, but we're back once again for the first episode of, of 2023 to chat to another pioneering exoplanet astronomer. And this week, or this month, I should say, we're, we're excited to be joined in the virtual studio by Georgina Dransfield, a PhD student at the University of Birmingham in the UK, where she works on finding new exoplanets using the transit method. So among data from ground-based surveys like Speculus and space-based spacecraft like, uh, like TESS, George is also somewhat unique in observing from Antarctica, specifically using and helping to run the ASTEP uh, telescope. You know, we've spoken to astronomers using space-based data or travelling to remote desert observatories or even, you know, travelling on board 747 jumbo jets to observe. But I think this is the first time we've ever spoken to anyone who uh, goes to one of the ends of the Earth for exoplanetary science. So I can't wait to get into chatting about that. And of course, George will also adopt a new planet into our little family and share with us a little bit about her journey in science up to now. So welcome to the show, George. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's um, let's kick off a little bit about how you study exoplanets. So you use the transit method, is that right? Yeah. So with transits, we're specifically looking for the planet kind of passing in front of its star along our, our line of sight. And as it does this, it blocks out like a teeny tiny bit of starlight. And obviously astronomers, you know, spend our lives making <laughs> graphs like all other scientists. So we just kind of like take measurements of the light coming off the star. And we do this like over and over and over again throughout night. And then we make a graph of like the brightness of the star over time throughout the night. And what we're looking for is like a really nice dip in the light at some point. And, uh, and that could be indicative of something um, going in front of the star during the observation, ideally a planet, some sometimes dust. But yeah, so ideally we're looking to find those kind of shadows as planets go in front of their stars and, and that's how I find planets. But specifically you do this from the ground so there's also I'm guessing issues with things in our atmosphere that block the star's light? Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the issues with ground-based astronomy that you know you have you have like the the atmosphere just in the way. So things like water vapor in the atmosphere are a nuisance, um, and things like clouds, for example, and just kind of like random bits of turbulence. So the same thing that kind of causes planes to go bumpy as you're flying, just kind of pockets of air of slightly different densities. Um, it, it causes stars to twinkle. Um, and while that might be really pretty and um inspire nice nursery rhymes, it's a massive nuisance to astronomers. Um, it's what we're looking for is for the stars to just be nice round dots throughout the night instead of kind of like, you know, pretty twinkly, shape-changing <laughs> crap. It's just unnecessary. So you work a bit with the data from TESS. So I guess that's one way to avoid the atmosphere, mm -hmm. right, is, is to go to space. Yes, yeah. So you gain a lot <laughs> by going to space and, and, and getting rid of the atmosphere. And the great thing about TESS is that it's doing kind of the, the really messy, dirty work for us of, of the blind survey. So TESS is an all-sky survey, and it just kind of blindly looks at huge chunks of the sky for 27 days at a time. And then, you know, light curves are made for tens of thousands of stars and then computers search these to find signatures of transits um, and then from the ground we follow up on them so we're not having to kind of point our telescope blindly and just hope we are following up on candidate planets that TESS has identified for us. I guess there is another way to avoid you know day-night cycles and, and, and thick atmospheres and that's probably 
why you go to Antarctica, right? So let's talk a little bit about Aztep and why anyone would build a telescope on the South Pole. <laughs> right, yeah. So Aztep is uh, the Antarctic Search for Transiting Exoplanets. So it's a 40 centimetre beauty of a telescope um, sitting on the Antarctic Plateau. Um, so it's uh, on an area of Antarctica called Dome C. And Dome C refers to an ice dome, which is like an inland glacier. So that's how we're getting like elevation um, in Antarctica. And it's like uh, at about 3,300 meters above sea level. So you've got so many benefits there. Like, first of all, the, the sun isn't doing the like the annoying thing of coming up all the time and interrupting your observations. So during the winter, we get one night that goes on from like mid-May to early August, <laughs> which is pretty awesome so you can do some of the longest observations possible from the ground but it's also the fact that like Concordia is like Concordia station is sitting on the Antarctic plateau and this is actually the world's biggest desert right so you think of deserts as being places like, like Chile and whatever but actually the biggest desert on the planet and the driest desert on the planet is here on the Antarctic plateau and so we have like ridiculously dry air so we don't have the annoying bits of like water vapor in the atmosphere and atmospheric turbulence is like it is not much of a problem either and what's really cool is like antarctic weather is like an absolute disaster right <laughs> however like the the bad weather starts on the plateau and then it kind of just goes down from there so we tend to have remarkably stable weather at concordia station um so it's an amazing site to do astronomy from the ground but there must be a few drawbacks to uh, to doing astronomy from Antarctica. Yeah, no, there's a couple. <laughs> yeah, so one of the biggest nuisances is the, the lack of internet. Um, so obviously this was a nightmare while I was there because I, it had, I had nothing like nothing no internet it was rubbish but so like we have like really really limited bandwidth and what this means is that we can't download our raw data like after every night's observations so with things like test follow-up it's such a rapid competitive game right you know like there's a transit available people will observe it from all over the world and you've got to submit your data and try and get in a paper so you need those results like the day after you did the observation but we can't get our raw data so everything has to be analyzed automatically automatically on site and just the smallest data products sent to us by email or like synced to our European server. And like if we want the raw data, we get access to it once a year when someone goes in the summer down there and puts it on a hard drive and then brings it back to Europe. So that is a massive pain in the ass that no one likes to deal with. There's also the fact that like, you know, we can only actually get there once a year. <laughs> so last year like, on our summer service mission, we installed our new two-color camera box um, with a blue camera and a red camera. And this had been like years in the making, just like the getting the money for this, building the two-color photometer um, and installing the damn thing and taking it down there. And and the USB cable failed. No. Oh, no. And yeah, and so we spent the whole season without our blue camera because the USB cable failed. There is always like a winter over astronomers. So like there's a winter over team of like 13 people and there's like an astronomer um, there as part of that team and we said to the guy would you mind just like nipping out 
the telescope oh and just seeing what's up with the, the cable. And it's like in the middle of the polar night and it's minus 85 degrees. Mm. And obviously none of the like uh, vehicles work because of petrol freezing. So he had to walk half a kilometer in the snow in the darkness and minus 85 degrees to try and faff with the cable for us, which he did. And then he couldn't get it to work. And he's like, guys, this could be a no. Oh my God. <laughs> I will never complain about getting a USB cable in the wrong way around yeah. the first time around ever again. <laughs> At least I didn't have to walk half a mile in 85 degrees, minus 85 Yeah, degrees. where's the redundancy? Why, why was a second cable not packed? You know... You've learned that now. <laughs> of all the issues that we thought there might be, we, we just didn't think that that, that would be the well, one. will. Yeah, so like now in the summer service mission that's just completed, they, they took several <laughs> usb cables and apparently it just couldn't cope with the data rate the usb uh, cable couldn't cope with the data rate and so like it just failed we just kept losing the connection to the camera too much science too, too, too much, much awesome science, science yeah we were just sciencing too I mean, hard it sounds like there's parallels there between you know space based instruments where you have this limited telemetry and maybe you have to organize this mission to go up and replace an instrument you know it's not like the telescope in, in, in the institute down the road where you can just go and play with it right yeah that's a very is, good point. Do you actually get more data than, or less data than from something like TESS? Like, is the telemetry rate even worse than to space? So our internet recently got upgraded. Um, so I, I sometimes do have to try and download files from Concordia. And last year, when I was downloading files, I would sometimes reach speeds of 22 kilobytes wow. per second. But now I've been reaching speeds of 150 kilobytes per second. So, you know... We're moving up in the world. <laughs> like 2002. Nice. I know. Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of like actually running the telescope, everything is set up remotely. It's mm -hmm. not a place where people are nearby. You said half a kilometer is where the station is relative to the telescope itself. Yes. Have yeah. you had the opportunity to go down and visit the telescope? Yes, I have. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell us about that. How long does it take? Yeah. How do you get there? And what? So, I mean, I went at the end of 2021, so it was still kind of very much like uh, COVID restrictions. So it took me longer than usual right. to get there, basically. So the actual, the journey itself consists of a lot of flights. So I had to get to Paris to meet with everyone, then to Singapore, then to Melbourne, then to Tasmania. And then from Tasmania, generally, we would fly to, like, so we got an agreement with the Aussies and the Aussies fly us to Wilkins, which is like their ice runway and then from there we go and chill for a couple of days at one of their stations so we sit at Casey and then from there we fly up the hill in air quotes up to Concordia but uh we had to chill in Tasmania for a bit because we had to do government mandated arrival quarantine of two weeks oh, wow. and then from there like we had to go into pre-departure quarantine so like to prevent taking any disease to Antarctica like you have to be in quarantine for at least seven days before you leave so we finished the government mandated quarantine but then you can't just say okay I've scheduled the flight to Antarctica now because the Antarctic weather does what ever the hell it pleases so we did two weeks of quarantine and then we moved into a different facility to quarantine to wait to depart and it was another two weeks 
and I, we had a couple of false starts where we'd like, they'd be, it's happening now, we're all going, and everyone would pack up their crab, and then we would bus to the airport, we got as far as being next to the plane, and they said, no, the weather's too bad, you're not going today, and they took us back to the hotel, and we did that a couple of times. But then eventually we arrived, we flew into in, into Antarctica and like the second we landed, the weather just exploded on us and it was white mm. out everywhere and we're carrying all our luggage and they're like, walk that way. If you keep walking, you will hit like a building. And we, just, we couldn't see, oh, like you could see oh. nothing. You just have to trust that you're walking the right way. It's like the air is filled with snow. It was really cold. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> yeah. And then we managed to get on a terror bus. Uh, it like has tires taller than me. And we went to Casey. We waited there for the weather to calm down enough for us to go up the hill to Concordia. So about four and a bit weeks after setting off from home, I finally arrived to Concordia Station. Wow. Yeah, and it was summer. So, you know, it wasn't too cold. Like when I arrived, it was like minus 25 yeah. degrees. Um, so, you know, no. it was... It, toasty <laughs> by the time i left it was like minus 50 um i was very cold were you there a few months then or so i was on base i think for about eight weeks and i was gone in total for about three months but yeah so there's specific trips out so you can't just like everyone has to go for like a yeah. set amount of time so there's like you know dates of entry in and dates of exit and I was uh, meant to be leaving on the final departure from the station which got really touch and go because like every plane that was meant to like come in the entire season to take things to uh, the Australian base failed because of weather and then hours kept getting put off and they were like we don't know what like how we're gonna get you off base oh wow well. I mean, I was, by then I really didn't want to stay any longer <laughs> Exocast So how about we talk about some of the size or the software pipeline perhaps that you developed to take down there that was the point of going down right was for this automated uh, software pipeline so tell us a little bit about that yeah, so I so I did go on a mission to the ends of the earth to install software <laughs> on the computer yeah so we had, like I said before, we like we need to have all of the data analyzed automatically on site and then just very small, lightweight data products um, sent over to us. So we did have a pipeline and it worked perfectly well, but it was written in the language of the dinosaurs in IDL. And the person who uh, oh, wow. maintained the pipeline... It's about four trap. Hannah still uses IDL, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's why she's shaking her head over there. <laughs> yeah, I had nothing to offer in terms of IDL. Right. But the person who maintained the pipeline was retiring. So we needed a new pipeline to be written in Python and we wanted it to be like modular and we wanted it to be more flexible so that like there could be a data product that we could then use here to remake light curves if we wanted and make light curves for like every other star in the fields if we fancied it. So I built a new automatic pipeline and I built it around a really cool bit of software called prose which a guy in Liège wrote and basically it's just like a beautifully simple and elegant solution to kind of taking images of the night sky and, and, and producing nice light curves so yeah so it needed a lot of adapting to work as an automatic pipeline and to kind of work on our images specifically but yeah so I spent ages developing this and I I put it on two hard drives and a USB stick and on a Raspberry <laughs> Pi um, I just you know I wanted to have it in as many places as possible 
accessible. And, uh, and, and also my husband had a, a hard drive with it here in case he needed to like post it to me in case everything broke on the way to Tasmania. He could just then like courier me another one. Yeah, so I had lots of versions of it. So it was a super cool thing, right? Because like it had to be installed on this server and like Linux servers, like their architecture is so particular like depending on what the architecture of that server is which like files you need to install the pipeline and no one could remember what it was that they'd sent so I had so many versions of things and it was either going to be something that worked immediately and I managed to install in a day or it was going to fail completely And and I assume it was the the former Drum roll, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually missing one binary file that I needed to install. I, I had so many versions of things, but I was missing one. And like the one thing we had access to was WhatsApp. And I WhatsApped a friend of mine in Europe and I was like, can you please send me a Python binary for pandas, <laughs> this version? And I used all of my day's data allowance to have that binary synced to me over WhatsApp and then airdrop it from my phone to my laptop to put it on a USB stick to pop. <laughs> On the computer and yeah and the installation worked so the installation worked on the first day and then i spent the rest of the time debugging yep yep yeah i guess it's difficult if you can't you know pip install you know you don't have internet so you have to bring everything with you that's i never thought about that yeah wow. Yeah, so you can't pip install, so everything had to be installed from local files. But even better for debugging, I did not have access to Stack Overflow. Oh, yeah, oh good God. point. Yeah. <laughs> so Stack Overflow is what you basically get if you Google any kind of coding problem. The internet spits back at you this this site where people ask these questions and other users answer them. And it is really the only way you learn how to use various coding tools. <laughs> Yeah, whatever problem you've had, someone else has had it, except for maybe this one. <laughs> this one might be a unique issue that no one on Stack Overflow's dealt with before yet. <laughs> so I'm in Antarctica. <laughs> I think really, like, one of the most important skills as a, as a coder is knowing how to phrase your problem correctly so that you get the right Stack Overflow mm-hmm. solution. Yeah to that problem <laughs> and it's like there there are at the station like four or five computers that have access to outside world internet but it's so slow i tried at one point i got desperate and i tried just searching for a thing on stack overflow and i left the page loading for four hours and it wouldn't load it so i just yeah. gave up so we've talked a bit about the challenges of, of getting down there but uh, I guess it's quite a unique place to do astronomy from as well in terms of the stars that you can observe and, and the time frame that you can observe as well. How does it differ a telescope in Antarctica to a telescope in the equator or something? Right, so like with transits, right? So we're looking for these kind of like little events where like the planet goes in front of the star and you get your little dip, right? So that's that's the thing that we're looking for. Now, a lot of the planets that we know of, they go around their star quite quickly. For example, compared with Earth, it takes Earth 365 days to go around the sun, right? But a lot of the ones that we're looking at that, you know, that we've observed from the ground, they do this really frequently, maybe like every few days. And the actual event itself doesn't last a huge amount of time. So this is really trivial to do from anywhere in the world. But one thing that we're kind of interested in is trying to find some planets that are maybe a bit further away from the star and therefore don't 
pass in front of their star as often and sometimes it takes them a bit longer to do that. So if you're trying to catch an event that happens infrequently, say for example once every 50 days, then you need to be really, really lucky to catch that event. And if that event, say, lasts like 10 hours when the average night on earth is like what... 10 hours um then you need that event to land so perfectly so you just rely on luck so from the ground you just really can't confirm any candidates like this that Tess has detected unless of course you're in Antarctica so one thing that we absolutely excel at that nobody else can do is long duration events and infrequent events and also events that don't necessarily arrive on time so one really cool thing is like in multi-planet systems sometimes like if the orbital period the time it takes the planet to go around the star like for each of them is like an exact multiple of another one then this causes them to like find themselves close together quite frequently and then they have like gravitational kicks that cause like the events to not arrive on time so this is called transit timing variation so the timing of the transits they vary and they're just kind of like late or early and so like if you've got an infrequent event that's really really long and isn't even going to happen when you predict it you need like the widest Mm -hmm. possible baseline to be able to catch those so ttvs long periods long transits no one does those better than us so yeah we're pretty 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 cool at those (laughs) I guess you can only observe things that are very close to the southern pole for a long time. Is that right? Um, so we can see as high north as like minus 40. Okay. So like minus 40 degrees in declination is pretty much our hard limit. So things might be quite low for us uh, at, that, at that limit. But like, you know, we can, we can go as high as that. So we are very good at like observing things that are close to the ecliptic pole and there's a lot of things that might have set kind of like so are no longer visible from other observatories at a certain point but are still visible for us but yeah no we can see other stuff too so we're not just limited to stuff right on the pole okay nice so what are the kind of some of the exoplanet observations that you've done with this telescope what are the ones that really stick in your mind oh i have some favorites so we recently observed a transit of a circumbinary planet so a circumbinary planet is a planet like Tatooine from Star Wars that's going around two stars instead of one so there are only a handful of these that are actually known so far and because of the binary star at the center of this these have like extreme transit timing variations so the transits can be like a day early or a day late and they're really really long periods like into the hundreds of days and the events are super long so a transit of a circumbinary binary planet had never been observed from the ground and ASTEP has now observed it I think three times so we caught the first second and third transits of a circumbinary planet from the ground which is pretty damn cool yeah we also last year observed the longest tra- continuous transit ever observed from the ground the transit was over 12 hours long for a 139 day period and it's the longest continuous observation as well it's like 36 hours of continuous observation to catch this transit so that one's pretty cool and we also confirmed a really cool system from TESS called HD28109, such a snazzy, catchy name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about so that. So, yeah, like, 
<laughs> this one is one that was absolutely tailor-made for us because it's long planets, long periods, long transit, and TTVs as well. So it's it's like someone just designed a system perfect for Astep. So yeah, so we confirmed that system and it's kind of the first one that we led the publication on as well. Awesome. That's so cool. Exocast. I guess we can transition to some non-linear routes into astronomy by teaching, perhaps focusing on your previous life, shall we say, as a secondary school physics teacher. So tell us maybe a little bit about, you know, how you made your way into that career and maybe how you decided to go from that career to the one that you got. Yeah, have. sure. So I did my undergrad in astrophysics and I finished and then immediately didn't know what to do with myself. Um, so obviously I decided to take a job at Dry Cleaners because I just I think I just really needed a break from yeah. thinking yeah. and uh, and during that time I realized that the sexiest people on earth were Australians um, so I decided to emigrate to Australia so that I could meet lots of sexy people and <laughs> uh, and I figured the best yeah and I figured the best way to do this to actually not end up having to kind of do the picking fr- fruit thing that a lot of people do to stay in Australia was to get one of the jobs on their list of required jobs so I did a one-year PGC and trained as a physics teacher thinking obviously that that teaching is the worst possible thing for me that I would hate it and that I would just get the job done and then move to Australia and do something completely different and I accidentally fell in love with teaching it turned out it's the coolest thing ever super fun and instead of uh, buying a flight to Australia I applied for a job uh, teaching physics in London Uh, and yeah I did that for like four years at that school and I, I just absolutely loved it my kids were just like the biggest nerds <laughs> they just they just constantly wanted to do more physics and to learn more physics and so like I did so many extracurriculars with them because I was like the one in the department that had the astro background I did a lot of the astro stuff so I started taking them to the UK space design competition and we did the astro olympiad as well and like a couple of my students got to like the the global finals on that I'm so proud mm-hmm. and then I started doing exoplanets club there's like a really cool resource pack from the institute of physics um which i used and like i train up some of my sixth formers to deliver this course to the year sevens and like in the year sevens would apply for a spot on the course it was delivered at lunchtime so it was the cutest thing ever and i loved it and then i just like i, I realized i was just getting so jealous of all my kids because they were going off to uni to like learn new shit <laughs> and i was just not not learning new shit so yeah i just like i decided to just copy them and go back to uni to do more learning and uh, yeah and then i just moved across the country and took a part-time teaching job and started doing a research master's in astro and uh, at Birmingham and then yeah I just stuck so uh, quit teaching for a bit and then started the PhD immediately after so so, so now I'm here <laughs> working in Antarctica. Were you always interested in exoplanets like from your undergrad or, or was that something that came with the exoplanet club? Um, So I'd done a module um, at uni where like they talked about exoplanets a bit and I remember thinking that seems really cool and I remember them talking about Kepler and stuff talking about transits and like and just thinking like that seems really cool and I liked the elegance of how simple and straightforward transits were just like it's it's like it's not hard science it's something that like anyone can kind of relate to and understand and I love the citizen science element of it as well um so like yeah so I was aware of it 
and then yeah I just came across the resource pack for exoplanets and that's kind of when I learned more about it so in order to teach my sixth formers to deliver the course I had to go and like learn a lot of the kind of like underlying physics of all the stuff that was in that little course so yeah so then that, that's how I kind of really came to exoplanets through through the extracurricular club at school that's awesome diverse routes in and maybe that's something we should link for this episode on our website we'll link to that resource pack because it sounds really really useful really interesting to encourage that extracurricular thinking but you mentioned a, a couple of really fascinating sounding competitions there including the uk space design competition can you tell us a little bit about that what did you what did you design for that right so the uk space design competition is just like ridiculously cool it's like an engineering thing but also design but also physics so what they do is they go to this like wherever it's kind of like organized for the day and like the teachers we help them prepare ahead of time and then we chaperone but we're not allowed to help on the day so they are put into teams and they're given a brief and so for example the one that we went to the last year we did it they were told there is this resource on mercury which is really valuable and it's called this and these are the conditions on mercury and here are a bunch of companies that can provide things like um, housing and transport and communications and energy and they have to then like they have the entire day to work with kids from other schools to design like a facility on mercury where they will have people living and people like existing as happy people harmoniously and mining this material and getting it back to earth and they have to see like say what companies they're going to be using and how they're working it into their budget and they have to like, design like with like cadding that like the living facilities and they have to think about things like for example like okay this is 100 years in the future like will solar panels be better by then and by how much do we think they will have improved and how are we going to keep these people happy and healthy and are we going to allow things like them you know just like reproducing do we or do we want to keep people like separate completely how are we going to like keep them entertained how often do they go home and it's it's so interesting to just kind of like see them working together to design for space and kind of like for the future so yeah so like there's a very very cool competition and then like there's the local regional ones and then they go to the nationals and then there's the international finals as well that sounds absolutely amazing so have you found that all of the stuff you did as a teacher and all of these kind of extracurriculars have been helpful in your phd how are you using all of that to really help with your research so I think that no one on the planet is better at time management than teachers. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, we have to fit in so much stuff to so little time. So I feel like I'm probably very efficient with my time and quite nice. organized. But also I think that the fact that I'm used to standing in front of an audience of, you know, probably the most critical people in the world, i.e. teenagers, and talking about physics and trying to, like, put it in as many ways as possible to make it, like, understandable to people who are non-specialists. So I think that that's really helped me, like, not have that whole thing of, like, giving a first talk and wondering, like, how I'm going to, like, you know, deliver a talk and not be nervous about it, but also just being able to kind of put things in, in, in more straightforward language. So I think, like, the communication element as well of being a teacher has been really, really useful. And, yeah, and I think just also the fact that, like, because I love talking to kids about physics specifically outreach is kind of 
always been at the forefront of what I like doing and stuff. So like I do a lot of outreach with the university and just, yeah, any opportunity for outreach is awesome. Like I, I, there are a couple of local schools that I go and give talks at. So like for coming up British Science Week, I'm going to be giving a, a talk at a local school here and they've decided to invite like a bunch of other local schools. So it's just going to be a bigger talk than a mass amounts of children you have to communicate with all at once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> George, in, ter- in charge of all of the assemblies for a week. Absolutely. Give me all the kids. <laughs> I'll take care. It's fine. That sounds creepy. Sorry. <laughs> now, the, only because you mentioned that it sounds creepy. It's a, like <laughs> creep intent, but like... <laughs> I didn't mean to sound creepy. <laughs> George is a very lovely person and this was not creepy at all. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, an awkward segue into adopting things, I guess, perhaps. That is actually um, so awkward. To, Thanks, Andrew. It's an awkward segue. I knew there was something there, but all the parts are not quite put together. Yeah. But it does bring us somewhat awkwardly to our final segment for our interview, right? Which is asking George whether she's considered a special favourite planet that she might want to add to our eclectic gathering of worlds that we've collated over the last few years. So, George, what's your uh, adopted planet for our episode? My adopted planet is hd 63454b 63454b yeah okay (laughs) okay you're gonna have to tell us why because i don't think any of us or our listeners have probably heard of that one yes tell us a little bit more okay right so (laughs) this is gonna be something that like is i guess quite specific to me caring about this the best right that's why we want the adopted adopted planet segment here Yeah, so its designation, as we said, is HD6354B. But I don't know if you guys have talked about this, but like uh, there have been a couple of global competitions from the International Astronomical Union to name exoplanets. So back in 2019, for the 100-year anniversary of the IAU, they had one where they got people, they assigned to different countries, to each country, a planet um, and a star, and they got people to suggest names for them. And the names that were given were culturally significant names. So this is the one that was given to Uruguay, which is where I grew up. I'm half Uruguayan. And so while the designation is shit and no one will ever remember it, uh, the official name of this planet is now Ibirapita, which is the name of a tree. And the reason I really like this one, and I like the name specifically, is because this name, Ibirapita, is the Guarani name for the tree. So Guarani is an indigenous language from like a big part of South America. And while kind of like the native people of Uruguay, which are uh, indigenous people called the Charruas, were uh, genocided out of existence and not much is known about their language or their culture or their history, the Guarani people did also exist in Uruguay for a big time. And this language and this culture does survive today. So that is the Guarani name for this tree. So this is like the official name for this planet. And I really like the idea of having one with an indigenous name in the collection. As for the planet itself, it could not be more bog standard it is it's a hot jupiter with a period of 2.8 days it was so non-special that in 2005 its discovery was published as part of a three planet paper because it wasn't even unique enough to get its own paper it's i don't think been reobserved since there's about the planet there's really not much to note i just like the name Well, you could look at it in the way that we live in a time where we're so fortunate to have so many planets that this incredible discovery would be considered a bog standard hop Jupiter nowadays. So it's got the personal connection, which is the important thing, really. Yeah. But it is it would also be an interesting candidate. Right. If we just didn't have thousands <laughs> of others just like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
exactly. But, you know, I also like the fact that it was discovered in 2005, which is the year that I moved from Uruguay to England. So, you know, like... We, we were doing things in sync, me and this There's planet. a whole host of connections there, which is excellent. We, we love it when there's a personal kind of connection to the planets that we adopt. Just going to dig a little bit more information out of you. This is a radial velocity planet, so it's non-transiting. Yes, so they did actually search to see if it was going to transit. They did some transit predictions, um, but I think actually like they, they checked some photometry for it back in 2000 and something after 2005 yeah. it will be for sure <laughs> but yeah but they they found there were no transit signatures the star is actually quite active so you know the, the star seems cool it's, uh, the star's a k-dwarf and i actually had a look in tests to see if it had been observed and if there was any transit and there is indeed no transit visible whatsoever for this planet so yeah it's an rv planet with uh with no transits but an excellent one to add to our eclectic family so thank you for that one yeah right thank you for accepting it and we could even put it as as Ibaranita in our list rather than its boring name I think that would be nice yeah Ibirapita Ibirapita okay Ibirapita (laughs) it's kind of an awkward one to say I (laughs) realise but uh, yeah it's got like the accent on the uh, on the A on the last syllable awesome and the star is called Sabor which is another tree what kind of tree (laughs) now now there's multiple trees here and I'm just trying to think like so I can't remember what Sabor looks like, but the Ibirapita is like a kind of a, a, a really, really big tree. It's also in Uruguay known as Artigas tree, named after the guy who was like our liberator who fought for independence uh, from Spain. But he was exiled in Paraguay and afterwards, and the place where he lived in Paraguay had one of these big trees that he used to sit under and uh, and drink mate and, and think about Uruguay. Uh, so we also refer to it as Artigas. I love, this. I love a little bit of a little bit of history, a little bit of indigenous yeah, culture and some exoplanet science all wrapped in one. I think it's absolutely fantastic. So you don't just work on Astep, you've also been working on Speculus, which is Belgian set of telescopes. It's a follow-up to the TRAPPIST surveys. Is there anything you've been working on from that recently? So yeah, so Speculus is a network of telescopes. We've got four telescopes in the south and two in the north, and they're all like one meter. So they're kind of um, really good at finding small planets around really small, faint stars. So we're specifically looking around kind of red dwarf type stars, not the terrible BBC TV show but the stars themselves so uh, we, nice. we've uh, <laughs> it's got some good some good episodes but yeah it's fine <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find fine. out how many people you insulted <laughs> well my husband well, I'm with for you one on this trip, uh, he tried to get me to like it but I just couldn't it's too British that's the problem I just didn't grow up with this type of of thing I don't get that humour it's too British for me I don't get it anyway over Uh, (laughs) yeah Yeah, so we're looking, like our main survey, Speculus is kind of like a blind survey in its own right, and we're looking for kind of like small, rocky, habitable zone planets around very, very small, faint stars, specifically ultra-cool dwarfs. But about 20% of our telescope time is available for annex programs. So I manage a lot of that time for our telescopes, and a lot of it is dedicated to test follow-up. So where test produces a candidate that kind of falls into this category, we jump on it. And one that we were able to confirm over the last year or so, and that the paper will be out very soon is one called TOI 715B. Great names, those ones. So this is a a 19-day planet around a really cool star. So the star is about like 
3000 Kelvin and the planet has a temperature of about like 300 Kelvin so it's like it's a really really nice kind of temperate one the habitable zone I'm sure you have talked a lot about the habitable (laughs) zone and just like so many ways of defining it which is a massive nuisance because no one can agree on like the right definition for it but what I really like is there's one paper that kind of said okay fine there's all these different ways of defining it depending on like the star you have and depending on the planet and depending on if the planet is reflective or not depending on all these factors but we can define like one kind of set of like of of parameters where if a planet falls into here regardless of what the star is regardless of like how reflective the planet surface is regardless of what type of star like what type of planet is regardless of any of that stuff if it's in these boundaries then it's inside the habitable zone and there's only so far been like one test planet found inside this you know incontrovertible habitat so many air quotes habitable zone and TOI 715 would be number two in this one so it doesn't mean it's like the most habitable planet it doesn't mean that you know it's the only habitable zone planet but you know it means that like in terms of like these parameters of like possible liquid water it's it's in the right sweet spot so that's kind of cool so Speculus is is producing a lot of cool results so i think we'll see a lot more from that and from george in the future so thank you george for having a chat with us today thank you for adopting a new planet into our weird and wacky family no worries it's been a pleasure don't forget to look out for our news episodes later this month and let us know what you think about the show through Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash exocast. Each coffee is just $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. A big thank you this month to Rick Schwartz, Brian Krell and moyle croft for donations of coffee over the past couple of months since our hiatus you can also get your hands on some exocast merchandise t-shirts stickers mugs and more at exocast.threadless.com exocast is edited by fergus hall thank you fergus and is available wherever you get your podcasts thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next time bye 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 Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne at KOPS, Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, Lecturer in Astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a Lecturer in Astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. Find out more on exocast.org. I have exoplanets.